You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. The Constant is brought to you by Industrial Artifacts. Industrial Artifacts is home to more than 20,000 square feet of vintage lighting, seating, tables, advertising, and other found objects, each with a story to tell. For instance, perusing their wares just now, I discovered a strange three-dimensional sign for Norwich Union Fire Insurance Society, one of the oldest fire insurance companies founded in 1797. Up until 1929, signs like this one, called insurance marks, were put up to denote what buildings were insured by whom. Why? Because fire insurance companies had their own fire brigades. Rather than city fire departments, the insurance companies themselves were the way you got people to come quench the flames. But only if you had the insurance mark. If not, tough luck. That's just one of thousands of items available at Industrial Artifacts. They've got everything you need to outfit a new bar, office, or even your kitchen. And right now, Industrial Artifacts is offering constant listeners 15% off their entire first order, simply by entering coupon code THECONSTANT at checkout. So go to industrialartifacts.net today, and remember to enter coupon code THECONSTANT at checkout to get 15% off your first order. Ah, 19th century insurance industry, the original protection racket. On May 18, 1860, the still young Republican Party held its national convention at the Wigwam in Chicago on Lake Street, just off the Chicago River, where, 55 years later, a submarine would be found. The leading contender for the presidential ticket was Senator William Seward, with former Illinois Congressman Abraham Lincoln in a strong second. When Seward failed to wrap up the nod in the first round, a second vote was held. This time, Senator Cameron of Pennsylvania bowed out and pledged his delegates to Lincoln. After a second round of voting, Abraham Lincoln was the Republican nominee for president. But his election was anything but assured. The big issue of the race would be, you're not going to believe this, slavery. And Lincoln's position put him in a difficult spot nationally. 
His stance was that he wouldn't force southern states to give up the peculiar institution, but he wouldn't allow it to spread either. As new states joined the Union, they would have to be free. Needless to say, the slave states didn't like that. They feared, with some reason, that if free states began to outnumber slave states, they'd be marginalized and, eventually, emancipation would come. But the slave states weren't particularly pleased with the alternative, either. Stephen A. Douglas, also a former Illinois congressman, led the ticket for the Democrats. His position on new states was that they should get to decide for themselves whether to be free or slaveholding. Southern states recognized this philosophy of popular sovereignty as a different name for the same result. It was unlikely that the increasingly unpopular practice of slavery would be freely chosen by most, if any, of the prospective new states. So, the Southern Democrats held their own convention and nominated their own ticket with Vice President John Breckinridge at the top. Meanwhile, the anti-immigrant, nativist know-nothings formed a new party out of the ashes of the recently raised American Party. It was called the Constitutional Union Party, and they nominated Tennessee Senator John Bell. With the conservative, pro-slavery, and anti-immigrant vote split three ways, Lincoln's ascent to office went from a long shot to a done deal. Breckinridge took most of the slaveholding southern states, with the exceptions of West Virginia, Tennessee, and Kentucky, which went to Bell. Stephen A. Douglas's vote was so diluted that even with 29% of the electorate, he only managed to win Missouri and New Jersey. Lincoln, meanwhile, took all of the North and the Western states of California and Oregon, along with just short of 40% of the national vote, a clear plurality that would have been a lot less clear if not for the divided conservative field. Before Lincoln could even be inaugurated, seven of the slave states hysterically hit the eject button, seceding from the Union while the other eight looked nervously on. Lincoln put on the kid gloves in his first inaugural address on March 4, 1861, attempting to assure the South that he didn't want a war and stating, I have no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the United States where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, and I have no inclination to do so. Probably Lincoln was being legally truthful. He certainly didn't want a war, and he didn't believe there was any way to bring about abolition peaceably. But no inclination? Surely he had some inclination. Probably Lincoln's idea for the future of slavery was the same as the Southerners feared that new free states would eventually swamp them and be their end. But we'll never know, because the new Confederacy started raiding and seizing Union forts like the bunch of whiny, scaredy-cats they were, shouting, States' rights! Even though the only reason Lincoln had gotten elected was because they failed to vote for Douglas, the states' rights candidate. On April 12, 1861, Southern troops fired on Fort Sumter. And, well, you pretty much know the rest. In total, something like 3.2 million people fought in the American Civil War. And by the time it ended in 1865, as many as 1 million were dead. The war was, contrary to a whole cloud of disingenuous smoke and mirrors, explicitly about the institution of slavery. But that isn't to say things were simple. As revisionists are keen to point out, most who fought for the Confederacy were not slave owners themselves. And that's... <sighs> worth staying, I guess. More interesting was the range of opinions in the North. 
Plenty of Unionists weren't necessarily super invested in abolition, they just didn't like the idea of the South leaving the country. And the abolitionists deserve a big asterisk themselves, as many of the anti-slavery wasps didn't dislike the institution so much because they thought blacks were equal to whites in dignity and humanity, but because they thought the sin of slavery tainted the souls of the whites themselves. But the most important complication in understanding the war is that, as in all wars, most of the people who actually fought in it didn't really have say in what they were fighting for. Take the Irish. They arrived in America by droves in the wake of the starving, frequently called the Irish Potato Famine, though that really undercuts that the whole thing was engineered by the British. The Irish fought in the Civil War in numbers way above their relative portion of the population. There were an estimated one and a half million Irish in the nation. 200,000 of them fought in the war. Divide 1.5 million in half for the rough number of males, subtract children and the elderly, and that's essentially every Irish hand that could possibly hold a gun. Are we to take from this that the largely uneducated Irish refugees had particularly strong feelings on slavery that just happened to track almost perfectly with their geographical location in 1861? That'd be a pretty big coincidence. I'm sure there were plenty of fighting-age Irish men who opposed slavery, and those who supported it, too. But feelings on the central issue of the war weren't what drove Irish enlistment in the main. Some were drafted, and that was a bit of a kerfuffle, with draft riots breaking out in Detroit and New York City. Some were probably looking to prove their patriotism. In 1861, the Catholic Irish were viewed with severe suspicion and loathing from large parts of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant majority, who considered them none of those things aside from maybe white, but only provisionally. And plenty of poor Irish likely just saw a well-paying job that they were allowed to have. But some considerable part of the Irish-American fighting force saw a different opportunity, a chance to learn battle tactics that they could use once the war was over to invade Canada and free Ireland from British rule. And to do it, they were going to build a submarine. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today, part four of The Fool Killer, The Unusual Suspects. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Disgusted and outraged by the British-imposed starvation, young Irelanders rose up in armed rebellion in 1848, but were beaten back. One of the leaders of that movement was John O'Mahony, and when things went pear-shaped, he made steam first to Paris and eventually the United States, where he formed the Fenian Brotherhood a secret society of Irish nationalist émigrés bent on deposing the English from the Emerald Isle. Well, 
Secret society is a bit generous. In theory, the Fenians and their plans were meant to be confidential, but in practice, their members couldn't stop talking to the press about everything, including their plans for a Canadian invasion, which really began to take shape after the Civil War ended. Fortunately for the Fenians, the American government post-war was pretty pissed off at the UK on account of they'd helped build Confederate merchant raiders that sank dozens of Union civilian ships, which we talked about in our episode What's So Funny About Peace, Ship, and Understanding back in Season 5. So even though the US knew that there were thousands upon thousands of Irish Americans readying to cross into Canada and wage war, they sat on their hands about it. The Fenian invasion plan was truly buckwild. The general idea was to put so much hurt on colonial Canada that the British crown would finally say uncle, come to the table, and agree to leave Ireland just to make it stop. At the time, it didn't sound so outlandish. The Fenians didn't just have thousands of members, but thousands of battle-hardened Civil War veteran members. In contrast, the Canadian volunteer forces were poorly trained and lacking actual on-the-ground experience. In April of 1866, John O'Mahony led more than 700 Fenians from Maine and onto Campobello Island in New Brunswick. But before things could get serious, Commander Charles Doyle of the British Navy showed up on the scene with a flotilla of warships and more than 700 redcoats. O'Mahony quickly rethought the Campobello plan and the raider strategy more broadly. The Fenians dispersed, and O'Mahony's leadership decided to focus on fundraising for revolutionaries in Ireland. But there was a more militant group of Fenians, led by William Roberts, who still liked the idea of kicking England right in the maple leaf. T.W. Sweeney immigrated to the U.S. in 1833 and became a second lieutenant in 1846, fighting in the Mexican-American War, losing his arm at the Battle of Cerro Gordo, and continuing to fight on after that into the Civil War, where he rose to the rank of Brigadier General. After Appomattox, he became Secretary of War for the Fenians. And after the ill-fated New Brunswick invasion, he composed a multi-pronged attack on Canada to suit Roberts and his raiders. Sweeney's plan was to launch a diversionary attack from Buffalo, New York on Fort Erie. Then, when the Canadian army was distracted and drawn east, the real forces would cross the Great Lakes and Boundary Waters from points as far south as Fenian headquarters in Chicago, sieging points around Ontario from Windsor to Toronto. On June 1, 1866, between 1,000 and 1,300 Fenians crossed the Niagara River in an advance on Fort Erie. The night before they'd found the watchman for the U.S. Navy gunboat USS Michigan, which was stationed on the river, and drunk him under the table, so when the Irish National Army began its crossing, there was nobody on the American side to tell them to stop or give chase. And if that is not the Irishest of all Irish war plans, I don't know what is. When the Canadians got word that the Fenians were back again and threatening Fort Erie, they assembled their forces and marched in for a counterattack. But they were ambushed by 600 Fenians near the town of Ridgeway, and battle ensued. This time, the Fenians didn't turn tail. They engaged the Canadian forces for two hours of shooting. The Great Canuck Command gave contradictory orders, the Fenians made a bayonet charge among the confusion, and the Canadians broke ranks and retreated. Then, the Fenians marched on Fort Erie and waited for the next battle. It came just hours later. The Fenians won the Battle of Fort Erie and took prisoners of the surrendering Canadian militia. 
But by then, the USS Michigan had sobered up and cut off the Fenians still on the American side from joining up or resupplying their brothers. So, the occupying forces gave up the fort and returned to Buffalo, where they were intercepted by the Michigan and surrendered. The Fort Erie invasion was a huge foreign policy mess for the United States, and President Andrew Johnson finally laid down the law and stopped turning a blind eye to the Fenians. Still, the raiders were given at most a slap on the wrist, including Sweeney, who was arrested for violating American neutrality but was pretty well winked at in the process, continuing to serve as Brigadier General through 1870. A number of smaller, less successful raids followed for the next few years, up through 1871. But, with the federal government no longer in a laughing mood over their efforts, Fenians had a far narrower window. In 1876, though, they got a fresh infusion of energy. The English released a number of Irish rebels, and one of the most charismatic leaders, Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa, made his way to America to take control of the languishing Fenian movement. He created a line of cash called a skirmishing fund for resuming attacks against Canada, and $6,000 of that fund was earmarked for John Philip Holland to build the Fenians a submarine. Before he won the Navy submarine competition, thrice, and before the prize wasn't given to him, thrice, and before he built the failed USS Plunger and the successful USS Holland and the Holland-class British subs and the Holland-class Japanese subs, before he became the undisputed father of modern submarine engineering, before he was kicked out of his own company and had his patent stolen from him, and before he died just days before the first submarine warfare of World War I, John Philip Holland began building a boat for the Fenian Raiders. With the six grand from the skirmishing fund, Holland and his pal William Dunkerley began building their first proof of concept, which they completed in 1878. It'd be a tad much to call it a submarine, exactly, it didn't have any means of propulsion, after all, and it was only 13 feet long, a cylindrical tube pinched to points on either end. But it could submerge, and it could surface again, and after accidentally sinking it on the first attempt, it did both things successfully on the Passaic River in Patterson, New Jersey, before a factory worth of lunching line workers. The crowd was ecstatic, Holland was satisfied, and the Fenians were impressed. They forwarded more cash to Holland to build the real deal, a war-ready Irish submarine. The sugar plum vision dancing through Fenian heads was of a freighter, which could make harbor alongside British ships before secretly deploying three or four of Holland's boats, sinking the Limeys, and returning to the freighter, unharmed and unnoticed. Not a very probable plan, especially the secret part, since the secret brotherhood was notorious for its inability to keep a secret. Word of Holland's project seeped out practically as soon as development began. In private, he'd simply been calling it Holland Number 1, but a New York Sun reporter with an ear for a good story gave it the name it became known by, the Fenian Ram. When it launched in May of 1881 on the Hudson River, the Fenian Ram was a marvel. More than 30 feet long, with a diesel engine that allowed it to make seven knots underwater and even faster on the surface. It didn't wobble, roll, or pitch like most every other submarine built up until then had. It could dive or surface at a moment's notice, and remained submerged for at least two and a half hours. 
It even had a pneumatic torpedo gun that could be fired without sinking the whole deal, a surprisingly difficult benchmark that no other boat had then managed. The Fenians were thrilled and basically made gimme-gimme hands at Holland immediately, but he wasn't ready to deliver yet. There were still a lot of tests to conduct and improvements to be made. For more than a year and a half, Holland continued working on his invention, and it passed each exam its creator set up with flying colors. Let's just cut to the chase. Could this be the sub that ended up in the Chicago River, not far from Fenian headquarters in 1915? Is the Fenian Ram the fool killer? Oh my, no. But it's a fun story, right? And the details of why it can't be the craft salvaged by Frenchie Deneau are the most delicious of all. In 1883, Holland still wasn't done futzing with the ram, and the Fenians were getting impatient. Their organization was beginning to fall apart, and there were fears that if they waited until Holland was ready to get it over, there'd be nobody left to give it to. So one night, a group of Fenians snuck into Holland's moorings in Patterson and stole the ram. They hooked it to a towboat and swam it to New Haven, where they quickly realized they didn't know how to drive it. They made a number of attempts to figure it out, but eventually, the New Haven harbormaster told them they had to stop it before they killed somebody. So they returned, hat in hand, to John Holland and asked if he would be so kind as to teach them how to pilot the thing they stole. Um, no way, he answered. And with that, the agreement between John Holland and the Fenians dissolved. The Brotherhood dragged the ram into a warehouse in hopes that one day they'd figure out how to use it. But they never did. Not as a submarine, at least. In 1916, a year after the Fool Killer was discovered, the ram was put on display at Madison Square Garden by the Clonagall, the successor organization that took over after the Fenian Brotherhood finally collapsed. Today, you can see the Fenian ram for yourself at the Patterson Museum in Patterson, New Jersey, where Holland first put it to water. Very definitely not the fool killer. That about puts to rest the man from the East theory unless the definition of East in 1915 was uselessly elastic. Because the last two possible submarine builders we have to talk about are from Indiana, which is barely east of Chicago, and Wisconsin, which is by no contortions of logic or perspective east of Chicago. Let's begin there, in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
1892, a young Richard Raditz built his first submarine with the assistance of August Schultz, owner of Oshkosh Cistern and Keg Company. It was roughly 30 feet long, three feet in diameter, and built of barrel wood with a big plate glass window in the front to navigate by. When Raditz first got it in the water, he couldn't get it to go down. The wood was too buoyant. So he attached railroad ties to the bottom and engaged a bicycle pump to get it to submerge and raise again. It didn't work very well, not least of which because it leaked, but it didn't fail outright. Raditz piloted it somewhat successfully on the Fox River until he ran straight into a piling, smashing the window. He just barely managed to get it to the surface, but the boat was ruined. The wreck on the river had taught him a number of important lessons. Build from metal and keep the windows small. Raditz was only 20 years old when his first boat was built and then sank. He graduated from the Oshkosh Normal School, now the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, not long before. I can't ascertain what he studied, but numerous reports peg him as a young mechanical genius. He's also described by the Oshkosh Daily Northwestern with the most brutal of backhanded compliments. His appearance and bearing betokening that he has some object in life other than keeping himself well-groomed. Ooh, you could throw an extended family reunion under that shade. After the first sub foundered, he set to work on another, again with the help of Schultz and his cistern company, along with the backing of a couple of local investors. In its initial configuration, completed somewhere around 1895 or maybe 1896, it was 35 feet long and comprised of two long, sharp cones on either end, with two turrets midship that were the only places wide or tall enough for people to inhabit. The turrets each had small glass portholes, smart move, Richie, for the operator and assistant to navigate by. He replicated the bicycle pump ballast system of his first boat and added a kerosene engine for propulsion on the surface, along with an electric one for underwater. Oh, and he made it out of steel this time. Another bright decision. Raditz was able to dive and surface the sub right there at the boathouse in which he built it, on the Fox River in Oshkosh. And while those trials were successful, he didn't trust it to go out into the river proper. So, for the next two years, he tinkered and built and improved. He cut it open at the middle and inserted a much larger cylindrical compartment, increasing the length to 65 feet and giving room for a three-person crew to inhabit it in the most relative of comfort. He added batteries for the electric motor and replaced the kerosene engine with a 40-horsepower diesel one. And he did something else, something that none of the other more famous and funded submarine pioneers of the age had managed. He built an air purification system. How precisely it worked is a mystery. Raditz kept his cards fairly close to the vest, but from the few details he gave, it seems to have been legit and not far from how carbon dioxide scrubbers function today. Raditz's much-improved sub was launched on the Fox River June 26, 1897. He'd wanted to keep its maiden test secret, but word seeped out and a large number of people, including at least one reporter, appeared on the scene. Together with one of his two investors, C.C. Conrad, and a reporter, Edward Kennedy, Raditz boarded the boat and announced to the crowd, We are going to submerge and lie on the river bottom for 15 minutes. Then he closed the hatch behind him, and the strange tube of a boat, like something out of H.G. Wells or Jules Verne, sunk out of sight. Five minutes passed, and then ten, then fifteen. 
then 20. There was no sign on the surface, not even a bubble. After 25 minutes, some of the onlookers went to call the fire department, while others thought about how they could quickly dredge the river and bring the boat up, maybe even with its passengers still alive if they were lucky. Then, a half mile downriver, the sharp black snout popped up above the waterline, followed quickly by the two towers. When the sub had safely descended, Raditz had decided to give the propulsion a whirl instead of just sitting there. He'd brought the boat down to the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad Bridge and sat still there beneath the water as the three men watched a steamer pass overhead, unaware of their presence. It was a banner day for Richard Raditz. From there, he and Conrad made numerous successive tests. Successive, not always successful. On at least two occasions, they got stuck, once in the riverbed and once in a piling, and both times they barely managed to wriggle free. Raditz recorded more than 100 dives that year and 70 passengers, up to a dozen at a time. Conrad seems to have been quite taken and impressed by the sub. Why wouldn't he be? But for some reason, he and the other investors stopped funding the operation at the end of the season. Raditz sold his invention to some curious entrepreneurs in Milwaukee. He followed along and continued working on the boat and testing it in the spring of 1898 in Milwaukee Harbor. Moving the operation to Milwaukee provided more benefits than money. In Oshkosh, Raditz had been limited to piloting his contraption in the Fox River and Lake Winnebago. From Milwaukee, he had all of Lake Michigan at his disposal to test just how deep he could take things. But there were strict rules on ships of war in the Great Lakes, owing to a treaty with Canada following the War of 1812. And with its sharp, pointy nose, Raditz had trouble convincing the authorities his sub was peaceful. It does seem like he did eventually get permission to ply the lake, with a report clearing use from the Navy and an August 1898 Chicago newspaper article describing a reporter's voyage on board. Raditz said the sub was built for salvage, or repair work, or surveying, or even some sort of fishing. The boat is not intended for waging war on the leviathans of the deep. Although, with its steel nose, it can sink any battleship afloat with ease. <laughs> I gotta admit, of all the wackadoo sub-builders in all the whole of this weird wending story, I like Dickie Raditz the most. In a crowd of brash, boisterous, plucky, courageous, half-crazed daredevils, he stands out. Nobody in the world of early submarine building was especially respected or believed in, and that was fair considering that none of them are especially credible either. But Raditz was a poor kid from Oshkosh who looked at his own backyard and thought, I'll bet I can build a submarine here. He took bike parts and whiskey barrels and hot water tanks and slung them together on the Fox River to deliver an incredible machine. Even if the claims of what it could do were exaggerated, and they probably were, even if it couldn't go 14 miles per hour or 500 feet deep or stay down indefinitely, which it probably couldn't, it could still run circles around every other attempt out there, including that of John Holland with the backing of the U.S. Navy and George Baker with his barbed wire fortune. So, of course, I wish I could say that the 1915 Chicago River Fool Killer belonged to him, but I can't. At the end of the season, in 1899, Raditz pulled his remarkable apparatus into dry dock at Milwaukee's Jones Island for repairs and further improvements. It never went back in. 
The Milwaukee investors began selling their stakes, and without funding, there wasn't any way to keep working on it. He tried to sell tickets for underwater tours, but for some reason that didn't work. I don't know why not, because I would do that. He attempted to sell it to the Navy, but they were already in bed with John Holland. He offered it to the Russian Navy, but they were once bitten twice shy after their arrangement with Nordenfeldt and Lake. So, his marvelous submarine sat there on Jones Island and rusted away. It was scrapped in 1905, with some reports saying he sold off the parts to Holland. Could be. Either way, neither of them brought it to the Chicago River. Raditz assured the people of Oshkosh and Milwaukee that he wasn't done with submarines, but it seems like he was. In an interview in 1917, C.C. Conrad said that Raditz had given up on it after marrying his wife, Anna, in 1898. She was too afraid of losing him to the depths. It was that same year that he went to work for the machine manufacturer Alice Chalmers as an engineer, where he worked until retirement in 1921. He died in Milwaukee in 1933. On to Indiana. After this. This episode of The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. Everybody could use somebody to talk to, but traditional therapy can be expensive and inconvenient, and finding the right person is daunting. But with BetterHelp, you can connect with a professional counselor on your own schedule in a safe and private environment through secure video, phone, chat, or text sessions with your own therapist. BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors who specialize in relationships, depression, trauma, anxiety, LGBT matters, sleeplessness, and more. Their secure, convenient, professional counseling is available worldwide as soon as 24 hours after signing up. And if you're not satisfied with your counselor, you can always request a new one. Best of all, it's affordable, with financial aid available for those who qualify. And BetterHelp is giving Constant listeners 10% off their first month with discount code THECONSTANT. That's one word. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash theconstant, fill out a questionnaire to help assess your needs, and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash theconstant. And buy The Great Courses Plus. Every day there are roughly dickety billion blog posts, listicles, and yes, podcasts uploaded to the internet. But how much of that material is accurate, or factual, or even believable? The Great Courses Plus to the rescue! Their unlimited streaming service offers thousands of objective, unbiased lectures from respected professors who really know their stuff and provide valuable, in-depth content you can trust on topics ranging from great trials of world history to time management to exploring exoplanets to learning how to cook. And with the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen anytime, anywhere. If you're looking for more content like The Constant, and who isn't, I recommend checking out What Darwin Didn't Know, The Modern Science of Evolution. Darwin was one of the smartiest of smarties, and his theory of natural selection changed our understanding of life, the universe, and everything. But there's so much Darwin was unaware of that others have had to fill in since Origin of Species. He didn't know how heritability worked, or what DNA was. He didn't have an inkling about why things age, or what leads to mass extinctions. And he couldn't have dreamed of today's gene editing techniques and the opportunities and dangers they present. Stop second guessing. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. I've arranged for my listeners to get a full month of unlimited access for free. 
to get your free month. Sign up today using my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash the constant. Don't wait any longer. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash the constant. One word. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash the constant. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The SS Atlantic was the fastest steamship on the Great Lakes, famed for making the voyage from Detroit to Buffalo in 16 and a half hours. And the business was as brisk as the ship, with streams of Norwegian immigrants and Irish refugees making their way from the East Coast to the Midwest in the 1840s and 50s. On August 20, 1852, the 267-foot-long majestic ship with her two high smokestacks and giant water wheel were steaming through Lake Erie with nearly 600 on board when she was hit by a rival ferry, the SS Ogdensburg. The Ogdensburg was headed the other way, back towards Buffalo. The helmsman of both the Ogdensburg and the Atlantic had assumed the other would give over the right-of-way, and by the time DeGrasse McNeil, first mate on the Ogdensburg, realized they were on a collision course, it was too late. He ordered the engines into reverse, and the rudders turned full to port, but still the Ogdensburg smashed headfirst into the port side of Atlantic, cutting a gash in the side down past the waterline. In the immediate aftermath of the accident, everything looked okay. Both ships were still standing, still under steam, and they made the 1850s nautical equivalent of exchanging insurance info before returning on their respective courses. It didn't take long for the crew of the Atlantic to realize things were more dire than they'd thought. The slow trickle of water into the lower compartment accelerated and flowed right into the main boiler room. Then there was an explosion. The Atlantic had just three lifeboats on board, not nearly enough for the full complement of passengers and crews, but the odds quickly worsened even from that starting point. The first boat swamped, and the second struck the ship's captain in the head, knocking him out. With no one to lead the evacuation effort, crew and passengers began throwing anything that might float into the lake and jumping in. Meanwhile, the Ogdensburg had stopped a few miles east to make a more thorough damage check. When they quieted the engines, they heard the screams all the way back at the Atlantic and put pedal to the metal to reach them. The Ogdensburg managed to rescue hundreds off of the quickly sinking Atlantic, but many were not so lucky. The Atlantic didn't have a manifest or passenger list, and so the names and numbers of the dead remain forever shrouded. But at least 130, and up to 300, died on board. 
The survivors were left with nothing. All of their worldly possessions had gone down with the ship, and upon arriving to their various ports of call, Detroit, Milwaukee, Chicago, common funds were made to provide them with bare necessities. In addition to the dead and all their worldly possessions, the Atlantic had been carrying payroll and a load of gold bullion. Altogether, it represented an impossibly tempting target for salvagers. But there was a problem. The wreck was sitting 165 feet deep, and nobody really knew how to get down that far. A few months after the Atlantic foundered, American Express hired a diver by the name of John Green to go down and retrieve the safe, but he couldn't manage it. He came back again months later and managed to get it onto the decks, but before he could attach any sort of lifting line, something went wrong. According to the best records of the day, Green had to give up because he got the bends, but that's not how the bends work. You only get bent once you're ascending, so that couldn't have been what caused him to abort the dive. Nevertheless, that he did get the bends on the way up isn't in dispute. Green spent the next year in hospital recovering. A handful of other divers attempted to make the salvage in the next year, but without luck. The Atlantic lay in deeper water than any diver could make. If anybody was going to get the safe off the lake floor, they'd need a bolder strategy. They'd need a boat that could go under the water. But it was 1855, and such a thing was practically unheard of. Practically, but not completely. Enter Laudner Dervantes Phillips. Those who've been reading ahead might have wondered when we'd get around to Phillips, and might have also wondered if we'd end with him. The answer to those questions, respectively, are now and no. More than any other figure in this tale, Laudner Phillips is a question mark. And that's really saying something. Early submarine makers were, you might have noticed, pretty secretive, and the attention they received from the popular, credible press was frequently lacking. Both things are doubly true for Phillips, about whom little is independently, verifiably, certainly known. Two of those credible, independent, verifiable articles, though, come from the salvage of the Atlantic. In October of 1853, two separate newspapers report seeing Phillips bringing a submarine to the Atlantic's resting place. We can confidently name this submarine the Marine Cigar, based on Phillips' own records, the reports of his family, and some earlier news coverage. And most likely, Phillips was working to raise the Atlantic, or at least its safe, along with Elliot Harrington, the most accomplished diver on the lakes. Harrington was most famous for having brought up a hull from the decks of the wrecked ship Oneida in Lake Erie. The hull was a gigantic shipment of baking flour, and Harrington got it to the surface dry. Harrington and Phillips had already teamed up once before, a year earlier, to try to find the body of a sheep farmer named William Briggs, who had drowned in a lake on his property. They didn't manage to recover Briggs, but it seems both men were satisfied with the other's abilities and equipment. What else can we say with certainty about Laudner Phillips? Well, we know he was born in Parrington, New York, to Cyril and Verena Phillips sometime in 1825, and that the family moved to Michigan City, Indiana sometime thereafter. We know that Cyril opened a shoe factory in 1842 and that Laudner eventually took it over. We can safely say that he was interested in building underwater crafts at least as early as 1845, when he probably built a small crude submarine that he called the Whitefish, according to his great nephew Addison Phillips. 
Whitefish, it seems, was little more than a watertight barrel, perhaps plated with copper, big enough for one person to fit inside and move along the bottom via a long stick that could theoretically be used to push the barrel. By Addison's account, which was taken many, many years after Philip's death, the whitefish collapsed in 12 feet of water at Trail Creek at the mouth of Lake Michigan, just a few miles from where Peter Neeson and his Fool Killer 3 Arctic Exploration Balloon would be found more than half a century later. Whether the barrel was empty at the time, or if Phillips managed to escape from the inside, isn't known. Considering the 1853 newspaper reports, we know that Phillips built at least one other sub, and that it was definitely far more advanced than a barrel with a stick poking out of it. Its size, capabilities, and fate, however, as well as just when Laudner built it, are less clear. Best guess? Phillips built his marine cigar in 1851 in Michigan City, but it's possible it dates to 1847 and Chicago, which, holy crap, will we circle back to. According to Phillips himself, the cigar was 40 feet long, or maybe even 85 feet long, and weighed 8 tons. It was probably powered by hand crank, with two men able to make speeds of 4.5 knots, which seems improbable to say the least, but hey, it's what we've got. For air, it might have had a long periscoping snorkel, but also perhaps contained a carbon dioxide scrubbing device that, if true, would predate Raditz's by a good half century. The lore is that Phillips once managed to take the marine cigar to the bottom of Lake Michigan with his family aboard and stayed under the whole day. Again, I'm skeptical. According to Phillips, he could achieve a depth of 100 feet, but that too seems doubtful. A few years after the Atlantic affair, Harrington wrote to the U.S. Navy saying he could build them a submarine and described one he had worked on, which must have been the Marine Cigar. He describes it as being capable of depths of only 80 feet and speeds of just half a mile per hour. It looked like its name implied, a long wooden cigar pinched at either end with a pointed, conical bow, which could be swung open or even removed. And the whole of the main compartment was fitted with small glass portholes. In other words, it looked a lot like the Fool Killer, with one very important difference that we'll return to down the line. And that is, if Philip's boat matched Philip's description. The one given by the Detroit Advertiser is quite a bit different. Their reporter put it at only 20 feet long, pear-shaped, with a paddle wheel at the back and a steering paddle at the front. At any rate, the Marine Cigar is not our Fool Killer. We can't say for sure what happened to it, but according to a number of somewhat unreliable sources, it was lost when Phillips and Harrington tried to reach the Atlantic. So the story goes, when they tried to descend, the marine cigar sprung a leak and had to surface. Then, Phillips suggested it be lowered to the site on ropes with no one aboard just to test it out. Something went wrong, probably the boat was crushed by the pressure, the ropes broke, and Phillips' submarine ended up on the lake bed near the Atlantic. Although it's worth noting that dives of the Atlantic since then have not discovered any sign of a submarine on site. A year later, Harrington managed to dive the tragic steamer and recover the safe, containing more than $30,000 worth of cash and gold. He lost most of it in court. That same year, Laudner Phillips patented the first design for a true atmospheric diving suit, though it doesn't seem as though it was ever built. In 1859, Phillips was living in New York and trying to sell an attack submarine to various governments. The Americans and French turned him down outright. The Brits were more welcoming, but nothing ever came of it. 
The boat Phillips was pitching in 1859 had some, frankly, unbelievable specs. It could set or throw 100-pound torpedoes, bore holes on the undersides of ships, carry a 24-pound cannon that could fire underwater, stay submerged for several days with a full crew, and more. But while there were some tantalizing reports to the contrary, it doesn't seem that this attack boat was ever actually built. The later life of Laudner Phillips isn't well documented, but there is a clear and abundant paper trail of debt following him all the way to the grave. A lot of this money, I'm sure, was spent trying to build his various submarines, but he also had a reputation for fine clothes, food, and accommodations. His relatives said that as soon as you put money in his hand, he was looking for ways to badly spend it. We've also got to note that Phillips made at least two other attempts to sell to the American military. One was in 1862, during the Civil War, when the Union was far more interested than it had been before. But they went with the alligator, which we talked about earlier, leaving Phillips high and dry. The other attempt comes to us from a letter, written to William Graham of the Navy, who replied to the offer with a letter containing the quote we noted last episode. The boats used by the Navy go on and not under the water. The letter Graham was responding to describes the specs later given for the Marine Cigar, 4.5 knots, 100-foot depth, etc. But it begins by saying that he invented a different boat back in 1847. And here's where I should fill in everybody who didn't read ahead. There are only five or six people in the public record who have seriously considered the provenance of the Fool Killer, and each of them, at the end of the day, concluded that Laudner Phillips was the most likely builder. Nobody draws that as a confident fact. In fact, they all hem and haw about it quite a bit. But each eventually says that all things being equal, Phillips is probably the guy. The reason for this belief is that mysterious 1847 boat alluded to in the Graham letter. The record attests that sometime in 1845, Laudner Phillips and his family moved to Chicago and were there some amount of time. It's not clear how long or what they were doing there. Perhaps Phillips was looking to make a better business there or trying to escape the ever-growing number of debt collectors back in Michigan City. Or maybe he was building a second submarine, the one he tells Graham he completed in 1847. And maybe that's the fool killer. The Phillips family lore says as much. Both his son and grandnephew believed that the fool killer was his and stated that he did build a boat that was lost in the Chicago River in 1847. And it's true that the photos of the fool killer do bear a strong resemblance to the surviving drawings and descriptions and models of Phillips' creation. The tip of the fool killer isn't nearly so sharp, the conning tower is much closer to the bow, and the portholes aren't in the same place. On the fool killer, they're evenly spaced over the body of the boat, while on Phillips' drawing, they're all at the bow and the stern. But those are pretty minor quibbles. It's not a lot of evidence, but it's enough for most everybody who's looked into this mystery to come away saying, mm, sure, probably. But here's the thing. I'm pretty certain they're all wrong. For three reasons. The first is simple. All of this is total hearsay. Aside from a few newspaper articles, a patent application for a propeller, and a lecture on submarine history given in 1875 by a U.S. Navy lieutenant, none of which mention either a second boat or Phillips' Chicago adventures, the only sources we have to back up any of this are family legends, the earliest of which comes from an interview with Laudner's then 81-year-old son, William, in 1941, nearly a century after the fact. 
In the early 1990s, my grandfather started saying that there was a schism that caused half of our family to change its name to Chrysler with an I from the original Chrysler with a Y. And that was how we lost out on becoming auto industry scions. Total bullshit. Yet, we all at least half believed it for years to come. The word legend is the second least reliable word in the phrase family legend. As it stands, there is no record of anyone ascribing a second boat to Phillips in Chicago before the discovery of the fool killer. Aside from that reference Laudner makes to a boat built in 1847, which, yes, it's tantalizing. Isn't that enough? He says he built a boat in 1847. He was probably in Chicago then. Bingo, bingo, bongo. Sure, obviously it's intriguing. But think about it. In order for the hypothetical 1847 sub to be our fool killer, it would have had to be sitting in a river unnoticed for almost 70 years. And not just any river, the Chicago River, one of the most important waterways of the late 19th century and one of the most futzed with. Back in episode one of this series, I said if you were to reduce all known Chicago trivia to just the top two pieces, you'd be left with Al Capone and the Great Chicago Fire. But if you expand that list to, say, 10, you'd find another fun fact. Chicago is the site of one of the largest engineering projects in human history, the Chicago River. All right, locals, let's just say it out loud. Chicago was a bad place to put a city. One of Chicago's many, many, maybe too many nicknames is the city that works. And some might even argue that it does in some highly specific, often ethically dubious ways. But throughout the 19th century, nothing about Chicago worked very well at all, especially not the river. Here, let me sing a few rounds of There Was an Old Lady Who Swallowed a Fly for You. It's January 5th, 1900, and people crossing the Michigan Avenue Bridge downtown are amazed by what they see underneath them. Water that looks, for the first time in decades, pretty much like water. The Chicago River that exists today begins then. Step back a couple of days. It's the morning of January 2nd, 1900, and a crew of workers and trustees for the Chicago Sanitary District are working furiously to break a dam, afraid that at any moment, court officers from St. Louis would show up to issue an injunction, stopping them from a goal they'd been working at for more than a decade. The workers strike the last pilings, the canal flows from the displains, and one of the largest engineering projects in history is completed, just hours before it can be halted the Chicago River has been reversed. Until that morning, it had flowed into Lake Michigan, but now it went the other way, south and west to the Des Plaines, and from there to the Illinois, to the Mississippi, and right past St. Louis. It's 1887, and Chicago is known as Typhus City. The city's sewer system empties out into the river that empties out into the lake, and the lake provides drinking water for the million-odd residents. The Columbian Exposition is coming in just six years, and high storm waters have just nearly pushed Chicago's wastewater out two miles into Lake Michigan, where massive tunnels pull it in. It's a wake-up call to city leaders and the community. The decision is made, and the Chicago Sanitary District is established. Work to reverse the river begins. Not long after, St. Louis gets wind of the plan. Wait, says St. Louis, are you really saying you're just going to send all your poo-poo and pee-pee down to us? Chicago answers, no, no. With all the lake water going down the river, it'll make the water on the Mississippi even cleaner. St. Louis is 
unconvinced and filed suit seeking an injunction to keep Chicago from literally shitting all over it. It comes too late. It's 1854, and Chicago is the fastest growing city in the world. Industry is booming, traffic on the waterways is at its peak, the first mayor, William Ogden, digs out so much clay for bricks from the north branch of the river that he forms Goose Island. It's a good time to be in Chicago. Except that the whole place is an open sewer. The city is built on the flattest ground you could possibly imagine, and the things you might otherwise call streets are frequently just a foot or two of wet mud that has to be slogged through. For six years in a row, there have been outbreaks of typhoid fever and dysentery. But now there's a bigger problem, cholera, which kills 6% of the population over the course of one summer. So Ellis Chesbrough is brought in to create something relatively novel, a sewer system. He can't dig pipes under the ground because the whole area is so flat and sopping. So instead he proposes a radical alternative, lifting the entire city up. Between 1858 and the early 1860s, most of the buildings throughout Chicago are raised, some up to five feet, to build a sewer system underneath them, angled down towards the waste's new destination, the Chicago River. It's 1836. Chicago is barely a town, and the river is barely one of those, either. Commonly known as Mud Lake, it's usually only a few feet deep and mostly made of... Uh, you guessed it, mud. The north branch extends just up to Wilmette in the near north suburbs, while the south branch goes down only to the south side neighborhood of Bridgeport. Both theoretically empty into the lake, but in practice they don't go anywhere. The foul, dirty water just sits there, nearly perfectly still, except after very strong storms. So it's decided to dig a canal, extending the Chicago nearly 100 miles south to the Illinois River. It costs more than $6 million and the lives of several dozen Irish immigrants, but when it was completed, Mud Lake was no more. Instead of two feet of muddy portage, there was the Chicago River, with a clear connection to the Mississippi. The Illinois and Michigan Canal became the waterway that defined the city. Without it, Chicago doesn't grow, doesn't need sewers, doesn't need raising, doesn't need reversing, doesn't need any of that. Without the Illinois and Michigan Canal, there's no 20-foot-deep, 150-foot-wide river for the Eastland to keel on, and no 20-foot-deep, 150-foot-wide river for the fool killer to sit under. But the Illinois and Michigan Canal wasn't completed until 1848, a year after Laudner Phillips' theoretical Chicago submarine. Laudner Phillips couldn't have launched his boat in the Chicago River in 1847, because in 1847, the Chicago River wasn't big enough to hold it. Could he have floated it instead in 1848 or 1849, even 1850? Sure, maybe. But then, where was it for that first year or three? And even if you move the date back a bit, you still have to contend with all that other stuff. That for 65-odd years, during which the city was lifted, sewers built, locks constructed, and the whole river reversed, nobody noticed a 40-foot-long steel submarine. Which brings me to the other problem with the Laudner-Phillips theory, Sir Henry Bessemer. Bessemer was born in 1813 London, son of a French Huguenot named Anthony, who worked for the Paris Mint inventing ways to make medallions and coins out of metal dyes. Anthony had to flee with the outbreak of the French Revolution, but in London he made a good living producing gold chains, for which he invented a new process. 
Henry followed in his father's footsteps, working and creating innovations in metallurgy. He was able to reverse engineer the Nuremberg process for gold paint, selling his version for a 40th of the price of the Bavarian product. But Bessemer's greatest triumph is the process which bears his name. He developed the Bessemer Converter, a gigantic oven full of pig iron into which could be blown oxygen that burnt off carbon impurities. The Bessemer process changed the industrial Western world because it represented the first efficient, cost-effective way to make large quantities of a most miraculous substance, steel. Before Bessemer, working with steel was practically impossible, and any project of any size had to settle for cast, wrought, or pig iron, which was brittle and heavy. Bridges built of iron frequently broke, ships had to be made from wood and only covered, clad in heavy iron. Buildings, well, iron wasn't very good for making those. Steel revolutionized nearly every industry there was. It led, in fact, to the second industrial revolution. And everything good and bad that came with that owes to Henry Bessemer and his Bessemer project, which he announced to the world in 1856. Nine years after Phillips claimed to have built his second submarine. The Fool Killer, by all reports and all photographic evidence, was made of steel, which wouldn't have been available to Phillips for at least a decade, and probably not until 1866 at a minimum, since implementation and adoption of Bessemer's process was slow going. By the time steel production was widespread and affordable, Laudner Darvantes Phillips was dead. I think that's a pretty firm final nail for this particular coffin, right? There's no water for Phillips to put his submarine in, no metal from which to build it, and no record of it being in Chicago until a century after it supposedly was. Pretty hard to climb back from that. But here's the counter-argument in favor. It's a question, and it goes like this. Well, then who? If not Laudner Phillips, who? We've already ruled out every weirdo and whack job, every genius and lunatic. We've checked out reverends and munition dealers, self-taught prodigies and self-made millionaires, winners, losers, successes, failures. We've put every known submarine builder within a thousand mile radius of Chicago under the microscope and come out empty. And now, even the pet favorite Laudner Phillips strikes out. Well, then, who? Who built this stupid fucking submarine then? It's got to be somebody, right? The thing didn't build itself. Was it the dog? Did the fucking dog build the goddamn submarine? No? No? Then who? Who? I'm begging you. Who built the fool killer? I'll tell you in two weeks. On the final episode of this five-part series. The Fool Killer Part 5. The White Whale. Music for today's episode from Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevear, and Kevin McLeod. Voice talent by... Heather Chrysler. Bilal Dardai. And here's Chad doing it. Over on the Constant Secret feed, we're taking a brief break from talking about submarines to explore the life and legacy of the greatest Hamlet to ever tread the boards and his profound and surprising relationship to the Lincoln family. If that sounds like something you'd like to hear, you should join our Patreons at www.patreon.com 
slash the constant. And please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcasting app of choice. It'll help people discover us and help the show grow. And tell a friend. Go to constantpodcast.com to see extra details and photos about this episode, including Laudner Phillips' model of the Marine Cigar. While you're there, you can find our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages and follow us there. We are a proud part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, a group of independent, high-quality, story-driven podcasts out of Boston and home to Culture Hustlers, an interview podcast located at the intersection of art and business. Lucas Spivey hosts the show from inside the Mobile Incubator, a 57 Shasta camper towed by a 73 Canadian ambulance. From there, he talks with artists, performers, writers, designers, and other cultural entrepreneurs about how they hack their lives by selling culture. Lucas's latest episode is Don't Hate, Collaborate, in which he interviews more than 100 artists in Tulsa, Oklahoma, asking one crucial question. How does collaboration expand your creativity? Go check it out. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where gigantic, invasive Asian carp have been threatening Lake Michigan thanks to the very canals that reversed the river, this has been The Constant. A few weeks ago, I was at the Newberry Library trying to track down some info when one of the librarians told me that someone else had been there a few days before, looking for the fool killer. Who are you, mysterious shadow researcher? Will you beat me to the punch? <laughs>